Well, let me go ahead and welcome everyone here to the Cato Institute. My name is Justin Logan. I'm a foreign policy analyst here at Cato, uh, and it's my pleasure to, to have the privilege, really, to emcee this event today. Um, I apologize for the uh, cramped conditions. We've obviously had a very good turnout, so I hope that the, uh, the merit of the event will uh, outweigh the, uh, the crowdedness. Um, I'd like to also welcome everyone who's viewing either on the Cato website or on C-SPAN. We have these events uh, quite frequently, so we invite you to check back on the Cato website for those in the future. Uh, And just as sort of a save-the-date announcement, it looks like December 11th we'll be holding uh, an event in the morning on Iran. Uh, The details have not yet been ironed out, but if you have your calendar handy, that's December 11th again. Uh, I'm going to keep it very brief because nobody, I think, is here to hear me talk. Um, so let me just say that one of the sort of hard things about planning our discussions here at Cato is picking the right topic at the right time. If you pick the right topic too early, nobody pays attention. Uh, if you pick the right topic late, though, from what it looks like here, things turn out okay. Uh, and I think I can speak for all of us when I say that uh, we wish the Bush administration had thought uh, much more seriously and much earlier uh, about the very serious topic that we're here to discuss today. Let me then go ahead and introduce our speakers in the order in which they will speak. Uh, all of their CVs are distinguished, so bear with me for length here. Uh, the first record is, is first speaker, I should say, is Dr. Jeffrey Record, who teaches strategy at the Air War College in Montgomery, Alabama. He served as a pacification advisor in the Mekong Delta during the Vietnam War uh, and has held appointments at the Brookings Institution, the Institute for Foreign Policy Analysis, the Hudson Institute, and the BDM International Corporation. Uh, Dr. Record also has extensive Capitol Hill experience, having served as a legislative assistant for national security affairs to Senator Sam Nunn, as well as Senator Lloyd Benson, and later as a professional staff member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Dr. Record is the author of eight books, including Dark Victory, America's Second War Against Iraq, and two books that I'm looking very much forward to reading, uh, The Specter of Munich, Reconsidering the Lessons of Appeasing Hitler, and Beating Goliath, Why Insurgencies Win. He is also the author of the recent Cato Institute study, which is available, I believe, Chris, outside, uh, titled The American Way of War, Cultural Barriers to Successful Counterinsurgency. The second speaker will be Dr. Conrad Crane, who is the director of the U.S. Army Military History Institute. Before accepting that position, Dr. Crane served as the Strategic Studies Institute at the Army War College, where he held the General Douglas MacArthur Chair of Research. Uh, He joined SSI after his retirement from active military service, retiring as lieutenant colonel after a 26-year military career that concluded with nine years as professor of history at the U.S. Military Academy. He holds a B.S. from the Military Academy and an M.A. and Ph.D. from Stanford. He's also a graduate of U.S. Army Command and General Staff College and the U.S. Army War College. Dr. Crane has authored or edited books and monographs on the Civil War, World War I, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, and has written or lectured widely on air power and land power issues. He's the author of Avoiding Vietnam, the U.S. Army Res- the U.S. Army's response to defeat in Southeast Asia, and as well as the co-author with Andrew Terrell of Reconstructing Iraq, uh, Insights, Challenges, and Missions for Military Forces in a Post-Conflict Scenario, as well as Precedents, Variables, and Options in Planning a U.S. Military Disengagement Strategy from Iraq. Most of you probably know him best as the lead author of the just-released Army and Marine Corps Counterinsurgency Manual. The third speaker today is Thomas E. Ricks, 
who has covered the U.S. military for the Washington Post since 2000. Prior to his tenure at the Post, he covered the same beat at the Wall Street Journal for 17 years. He's reported on U.S. military activities in Somalia, Haiti, Korea, or I'm sorry, not Korea, Kosovo, Bosnia, Macedonia, Kuwait, Turkey, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Uh, he was part of a Wall Street Journal team that won the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting in 2000 for a series of articles on how the U.S. military might change to meet the demands of the 21st century and was also part of a Washington Post team that won the 2002 Pulitzer Prize uh, for reporting about the beginning of the U.S. counteroffensive against terrorism. Most of you probably know him best as the author of Fiasco, the American Military Adventure in Iraq, which is a number one uh, New York Times bestseller. Uh, the final speaker today is my colleague and a good friend, Christopher A. Preble, who is the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Before joining Cato in February 2003, Chris taught history at St. Cloud State University as well as Temple University. Uh, he was a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy and is a veteran of the Gulf War, having served on board USS Ticonderoga from 1990 to 1993. He's the author of John F. Kennedy and the Missile Gap, a very good book that discusses the uh, political and economic roots of U.S. national security strategy in the late 50s and early 60s. Chris's work has been published in major publications, USA Today, Financial Times, Orange County Register, New Republic, uh, Political Science Quarterly. I could keep going. Uh, he's appeared on many television and radio news networks, CNN, MSNBC, the regular gamut. Uh, Chris holds a Ph.D. in history from Temple University. So with that, I will cut my remarks short and turn things over to Dr. Jeffrey Racker. Thank you, and thanks to Cato for... <clears throat> You can speak from the podium. Thank you, and thanks to Cato for uh, inviting me. Um, I remember when Cato used to be down somewhere on Capitol Hill. That was many, many years ago, and I think originally you were in San Francisco. Right. That's correct. Uh, let me start out by uh, the standard disclaimer. Uh, my views uh, are my own. They do not necessarily reflect those of the Air Force or any other government agency. Uh, the bottom line of my very short presentation is that our strategic culture is not conducive to success in protracted wars of choice against irregular enemies. Vietnam, Lebanon, Somalia, and now Iraq. All of these are relatively weak enemies and yet we, in each case, have either been defeated or humiliated by them. There is a reason for that, and the reason, I think, is rooted in our strategic culture. What are the major components of our strategic culture? We are ahistorical. We don't care much about history. We are culturally ignorant. This is the only country, only postmodern country that I know of in which uh, somebody can be considered well-educated and not speak a foreign language. We are technology infatuated. We tend to view war as a technological challenge. We tend to overlook the human element of war. We are firepower focused. That's our strong suit. That's how we have usually vanquished our enemies, certainly our conventional enemies. And we are profoundly conventional. Our military is a profoundly conventional military organization. We are impatient, and we are casually sensitive. And above all, we are apolitical. 
we tend to view war as not a continuation of policy by other means, but as a substitute for politics. When we go to war, we tend to view it as a military enterprise in which the goal is the attainment of military victory, the destruction or incapacitation of the military enemy. We do not understand or we all too often fail to understand that the purpose of war is to achieve a political objective. It is possible to win a smashing military victory and lose the war because the victory has not delivered the political objective sought. This strategic culture has bred in our own military a historical aversion to counterinsurgency. If you look at the Army, the Army uh, went through the Vietnam War fighting the only war that it really knew how to fight, and that was a large unit conventional war. It was not interested in counterinsurgency. It walked away from Vietnam completely disinterested in counterinsurgency. For 30 years, it paid no attention to counterinsurgency until it encountered an insurgency in Iraq, and it was at least initially clueless about how to deal with an insurgent challenge. And what are the essentials of counterinsurgency? Minimal use of force runs counter to the American way of war. Primacy of political responses runs counter to the American way of war. Integration of civil military responses runs counter to the American way of war. Patience runs counter to the American way of war. Personnel continuity. We don't we're not big on personnel continuity, never have been in our military. Foreign language skills, need I say more? Cross-cultural understanding, need I say more? And historical knowledge. We don't place much of an interest in learning much about history. This essentially summarizes the major findings of the monograph that uh, you may have gotten copies of uh, that I did for Cato a couple of months ago. With respect to Iraq, we are losing. We are losing because we never committed enough force, and we are losing because we never fully grasped the fragile artificiality of the Iraqi state. We stumbled into a Middle Eastern Yugoslavia, and we still don't know it. What should we do in Iraq? It's not clear. We have some negative, minimal interest in Iraq, preserving Kurdish autonomy, keeping the jihadists on the run in Enbar province, and doing our best to contain sectarian violence as much as possible in Iraq. Whether we can do these, it's not altogether clear to me. The cumulative effect of our mistakes in Iraq may have overwhelmed any prospect of a satisfactory outcome from our standpoint. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, boy, he left. I wonder if should I take his minutes? <laughs> no, I'll try to stay within my limit as well. Uh, what I want to talk about is uh, attempts by the American military to reverse some of the trends that, that Jeff has talked about, with a particular focus on the influence of Iraq and Afghanistan and the emerging doctrine that is being produced by the Army and the Marine Corps 
Uh, the manual will actually be out 15th or 16th of November this month. Uh, I was doing some of the final edits last night. Uh, so the, the, the actual hard copy should be available in the middle of this month. This is a culmination of a process of reform that really starts in the 1990s uh, with the explosion of smaller scale contingency operations that appear at the end of the Cold War. I mean, we talk about the strains on the American military today. These are not a product of the global war on terror. They're a product of the end of the Cold War. Uh, when I taught at West Point, uh, we had a campaign one time. We were going to get together to make a big collection to go restore the Soviet Empire because life was a lot easier for the military when we had a much more defined enemy with the Soviets. Uh, but there's an explosion of smaller scale contingencies, many of them that Jeff mentioned. A lot of the experiences were very unpleasant. Uh, but it prepared especially the junior and mid-level leaders for change, the realization that there was something else than con major conventional operations that military organizations had to perform. And the experience in Afghanistan and Iraq, and Iraq demonstrated the need for change to the whole Army leadership and Marines as well. Uh, people are also catalysts, and in particular the, the two key movers and shakers behind the new counterinsurgency doctrine and reforms are uh, Lieutenant General David Petraeus in the Army and Lieutenant General James Mattis in the Marine Corps. And it's interesting that the, the efforts by the military to uh, develop the new doctrine and new practices have also infected the rest of the interagency, uh, led by the Department of State, who are trying to pursue similar uh, changes in doctrine, practices, and resources. Now, doctrine is just a piece of the effort to change the way the American military thinks. Uh, there are new scenarios at the training centers. If any of you have been to the National Training Center, which has now become kind of Fort Irwinistan, it's a very different uh, feel, very different atmosphere than the old days when it was just major force-on-force -force combat against the, the, uh, the Soviet operational forces out there. There are new curriculums at the military schools, at the Command and General Staff College, at the Captain's Courses, at the Army War College, that they're talking more about uh, issues of insurgency and counterinsurgency and, and what some people have called irregular warfare. There's been an accelerated lessons learned process. We know that this is a, we're against an, fighting against an adaptive enemy. The organization's got to change as well. We've got to have a better system to get the observations of the field into the schoolhouse, into doctrine, and out to the, the field for training and education. And we've expanded the lessons learned process to try to do that. We've expanded the way units prepare for deployment, much more cultural orientation try to get them into the mindset for this very complex environment of counterinsurgency they'll be going into. And of course, the, the new doctrine is also a part of this whole process. Uh, it's inaccurate to say that the U.S. Army had no coin doctrine going into Iraq in 2003. It did. But the coin doctrine was really based on the El Salvador model. 50 or 60 advisors, a lot of money, and the host nation really fixes its own problems was not ready really for the large-scale counterinsurgency operation that it's run into in Iraq. Uh, in the, before 2003, be 2004, the counterinsurgency doctrine was a subset under stability operations or foreign internal defense, and a number of the manual had signified that. One of the first things I did when I took over the effort to write the new manual was I asked to change the number on the field manual so it would no longer be a subset of another category, it would be its own category. Uh, it was like I was the Pope and I'd walked into the Vatican and I said, I think I'm going to rearrange the Bible today. <laughs> uh, I didn't realize how important changing that number was, but 
it eventually took General Petraeus to do that. But, but changing that number and creating counterinsurgency as a higher level operation meriting its own categorization, its own, uh, its own field of, of study made a, major inf made a major impact on the whole, the whole process. Uh, we've revised the way the Army looks at the full spectrum of conflict. We, it used to be that you thought that if you could prepare for the big war that all the other missions kind of fell out from that. We now understand that the most complex situation we face may very well indeed be counterinsurgency. Uh, we understand that the, uh, the experience in Iraq and Afghanistan has reinforced the image that insurgency is a mosaic war. One of the things that had that one of the dynamics that appears in my Army War College seminar is we'll be talking about one student's image of the war in Iraq and Af or, Afghan or Afghanistan, and another student will leap up and say, well, that's not the war that I saw. And that's true. The war differs by time and by location. One element may be doing stability ops. Another element is doing offensive operations. Another is doing defensive operations. It's a mosaic war. And, and it's got to be applied at a, with a local, you have to have a local solution. It's got to be very decentralized. It's the nature of, of the war that we face. Uh, there are uh, a number of specific influences from Iraq and Afghanistan that appear in this new doctrine. And it's, again, going into the training and education programs within the military. There's more discussion of failed states and what that means. Uh, Steve Metz at the Army War College has actually been developing some interesting studies about a national strategy that goes beyond counterinsurgency and is, look, and is more preventive. So we can get involved with, with preventing states from failing, preventing the atmosphere from appearing that produces these insurgencies. This is a wave of ethnic and religious insurgencies. This is not Vietnam. It's not Cuba. It's, each insurgency is different. It's got to be looked at that way. In many ways, this is not fourth-generation warfare. It's first-generation warfare on steroids. And you've got to appreciate the, the historic and cultural forces that produce these conflicts. The manual emphasizes the importance of the interagency process. Uh, as one of our paradoxes say, that the most effective weapons for counterinsurgency do not shoot. The, the rest of the interagency has got to get involved in doing this. Uh, the uh, socio and cultural intelligence is important. We've completely revised our intelligence section to talk about what you need to know to be successful in counterinsurgency. A lot of it has been written by anthropologists because you've really got to understand the people that you're dealing with. There's a, a chapter in there. It will be the first military manual that deals with this idea of campaign design. Before you do your operations, you've got to identify your problem, and there's a process to do that. And, oh, by the way, you may have a number of problems you have to deal with, a whole coalition of enemies, each which takes a different approach. And as your tactics become successful, the enemy adapts, you've got to change as well. So it's a continual iterative process of planning and execution. We have a, the concept in there of logical lines of operation, multiple logical lines of operation. The military has got to not only have its normal combat and security line of operation, it's also got to look at things like economic development, governance, essential services. It's a different way for a military to operate. It goes into areas that are not traditional combat tasks, but they've got to be done, in an, especially in in a situation of, of limited security, the military is probably the only person that can exist and can do them in that, that particular time. Uh, it incorporates the lessons of 
training host nation security forces from Afghanistan and Iraq, special aspects of logistics and counterinsurgency, and also talks about dealing with networks and adaptable enemies. One of the ironies of the situation we're in now is as we are more effective at breaking up enemy networks and making them disperse, these networks become much harder to eliminate. And the networks may not be strong enough to seize any kind of power in a situation, but they can continue to disrupt and cause chaos. And you create this dynamic where the enemy's network to seize power has got to concentrate where it becomes vulnerable, and our very success forces them to disperse where they become harder to destroy, but they can continue to create chaos and, 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 and uh, prevent stability. The, uh, the manual includes a set of imperatives paradoxes and principles. The principles of the manual are based very much on historical guidelines. The experience of the U.S. Marines, experience of the Army, experience of the British, some of our other allies. The imperatives are based very much on the situation we face in Iraq and Afghanistan today and the current situation that we're in. And there are five uh, that I'll talk about, then I'll, then, I'll, then I'll release the podium to the next speakers. Uh, the acronym that defines them is MULES. The first one is manage information and expectations. In counterinsurgency especially, every action has an information reaction. You've got to think about the message being sent by everything that you do at multiple levels, the international level, the regional level, the local level, even for your own forces, even for the American public. It's a very complex information environment. The most important logical line of operation for counterinsurgency operations is the information line. It's got to permeate everything we do. We have a problem with expectations. You've got to manage expectations. The, the fact that we're Americans leads to what uh, General Petraeus calls the man in the moon syndrome. When you show up and somebody's electricity doesn't work, they say, you're Americans, you can put a man in the moon, why can't you turn on my electricity? Why can't you get me a job? So you actually have to tone down expectations when you show up in an area to make sure that people understand what you can realistically do and, and to, uh, to work with them to create progress that, that it meets their expectations, it doesn't inflate them. Use measured force. Jeff already talked about the fact about it doesn't make sense to go out and kill five insurgents if the res result of your actions creates 50 more. There are people you've got to kill. And we don't shy away from that. But in general, if you're trying to achieve legitimacy and this popular support of the people, you don't do that with massive uses of force. Learn, learning and adapting. If there's a theme of the new counterinsurgency doctrine, it's learning and adapting. Your enemies are learning. You have to also. You've got to change faster than they do. You've got to be prepared for those changes. If, uh, one, if your tactics work in this province at this time, they probably won't work in the next province next week because the enemy is learning and knows what, work, what, what you're doing. It creates an interesting dynamic that, that, again, you have you may have units in adjacent towns doing completely different tactics that are very appropriate for the situation that they're in. E is empower the lowest levels. This is a decentralized form of warfare. You've got to empower those battalion commanders, those brigade commanders, sometimes those company commanders to fight their own war. They've got to have the intelligence assets, they've got to have the information assets to be able to respond to what the enemy is doing. You don't have time to work with a, a large military hierarchical bureaucracy that's going to slow down your reaction time. So that's another thing that, that, that this, this type of war has, has reinforced in, in, in us. And we've already ta always talked about this 
idea of a local initiative, commander's intent, give me your subordinates the freedom to do their own operations. You've really got to do that in counterinsurgency. And the S is support the host nation. The realization that in the end, these wars have got to be won by the people that you're helping. You've got to assist them in growing the institutions, the capability to win on their own, because when you leave, they're the ones that have to sustain the victory. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Tom Ricks. Can you all hear me in the cheap seats? <laughs> uh, I was telling Conrad Crane uh, just before we began that sometimes I feel like he plays the good cop and I play the bad cop. Um, so I'm going to give you the hole rather than the donut that he just gave you. Uh, I think his talk showed that the U.S. military and the Army can talk the talk of counterinsurgency. The question I want to address is whether it can walk the walk. Absolutely some commanders can. Uh, Special Forces guys did it uh, most of the time in Iraq. Colonel H.R. McMaster did it last year with the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment up in Talafar in northwest Iraq. General David Petraeus did it with an entire division in Mosul in 2003 and 2004. But can the institutional army do it? Can they do counterinsurgency? I think that remains to be seen, and I think there are reasons to be very skeptical, not just the strategic and cultural reasons that Professor Record offered, but also some systemic reasons and some institutional reasons here in Washington. The two major reasons, I think, are the state of the general officers of the U.S. military and the state of the U.S. Congress, and these are related problems. General officers of the Army especially these days seem to be off limits to criticism. The Army has a great lessons learned system from lieutenant up to colonel, but the lessons learned system seems to have a brass ceiling built into it. It's very good on tactical issues, okay on operational and almost non-existent on the strategic issues aside from what uh, Carlisle puts out at the Strategic Studies Institute, and I'm not sure that any generals ever read them or want to read them. So we are at this point now where the U.S. military has fought in Iraq longer than it fought in Europe in World War II, yet I don't think has honestly, coldly, and soberly examined its operations there. Yes, there have been some good individual reports, some good studies, but not, I think, institutional studies or institutional recognition of some of the leadership flaws. Too often, we've had junior soldiers, even enlisted soldiers, blame for problems that really derived from decisions made by senior commanders. This is a departure from U.S. military tradition, and I think the Iraq War needs to be regarded as a massive departure from U.S. military tradition in a variety of ways. That's a subject for another day. I just want to observe that at the outset of World War II, George Marshall relieved 200 senior officers not because they were disloyal, not because he even thought they were incompetent, simply because he thought they weren't the right men for the task he had at hand. Does anybody know how many generals have been relieved of command in Iraq? Zero Zero with an asterisk for Brigadier General Karpinski, because it's not clear whether it was shoplifting or Abu Ghraib or some combination thereof. One effect of this is that I think the U.S. military establishment, despite the writing of a very good counterinsurgency manual, has remained largely asleep at the wheel. 
over the last three years. I'm not talking about individual commanders. I'm certainly not talking about people on the ground in Iraq. I am talking about the larger institution, what people in the Army sometimes call Big Army. This is not my observation uh, or unique to me, by the way. It was made to me at the Counterinsurgency Academy in Taji, Iraq, last February. I said, why do you have a counterinsurgency academy here that gives a one-week shake-and-bake counterinsurgency course? And they said, because nobody back home was doing it in the Army. And so when, we, when these officers come out here, Army and Marine officers, before taking command, were required by General Casey to go to this one-week course on counterinsurgency. That's probably no way to fight a war, to have a guy in command in the Army for 20 years and then get one week upon arriving on the ground to be told, actually, this is how we want you to fight. This is especially troublesome because of the second systemic failure I mentioned, that of the U.S. Congress. This is another departure from U.S. tradition. We have a tradition in this country of intrusive congressional oversight of military affairs even during the conduct of the war. Uh, is most notably during the Civil War, a committee on the conduct of a war so intrusive it antagonized President Lincoln. But in almost every war, we have had such committees. Uh, Harry Truman made his name as a senator in World War II by holding hearings on defense contracting. LBJ, as a senator, held hearings on Korea. Fulbright held hearings on Vietnam. Here we are, as I said, in the fourth year of this war. Can anybody tell me how many significant hearings have been held with division commanders who served in Iraq? Again, zero, that's right. In other wars, you had hawks and doves. In this war, you have the silence of the lambs. <laughs> this is bad for two reasons. First, a Congress that is awake, that has, that has performed its oversight function, pumps oxygen into the American system, informs the public, and has a better electorate. Also, it tends to make the military more effective because it can light a fire under it, especially when the generals don't ask themselves the tough questions. Some of the questions that the Congress might ask, especially in regards to counterinsurgency right now, include these two. The training and advisory effort is the key to our exit strategy. Yet the last time I looked at it, 40% of those involved in it were reservists. Not necessarily bad people, but probably not your water walkers, your future generals. The first advisor I ran into in the green zone uh, in January, I said, why are you doing this? And he said, because I was, I was out of work back in Iowa. That's no way to win a war. Why is that? Why has the Institutional Army not committed itself to the training advisory effort, if that is indeed what the National Command Authority has determined to be the key to our exit strategy? What does it need? Does it have the equipment it needs, the people it needs? The second question that might be asked is, what is the relationship between command in Iraq and subsequent post? A good example here is General Raymond Odierno, who commanded the 4th Infantry Division. One of the big surprises to me when I did my research for my book, Fiasco, was that again and again, in internal Army reports, IG reports, the 4th Infantry Division was singled out for having an abusive nature in its tour of duty 2003-2004 sent tens of thousands of Iraqi detainees into detention facilities, including Abu Ghraib. Eighty-five percent of those sent were later determined to be of, quote, no intelligence value. 
One battalion commander was relieved for sh shooting off his pistol next to the head of a policeman being interrogated. Another battalion commander was found in an official inquiry to have uh, helped cover up a murder. He was not relieved of duty and instead was given a letter of reprimand. A soldier shot a detainee who was handcuffed and behind the wire, shot him in the stomach and killed him. The MPs investigated recommended a charge of homicide. Instead, the soldier was chaptered out of the army for quote the good of the for the good of the army, and no charges were brought. That's called getting away, probably with murder. General Odierno is going back to Iraq at the end of this year to take General Corelli's position as the number two commander in Iraq, that is head of day-to-day -day operations. That's a question Congress might want to ask. Um, now, I think General Odierno will probably command much differently, especially if General Petraeus replaces General Casey out there and implements counterinsurgency. Too often, the very good lessons that we've seen from some commanders in Iraq have been ignored, have been neglected, and almost considered unwelcome in the Army. When I was out in Iraq, I asked a very senior commander, how many of your subordinate commanders get it? He, and he knew exactly what I meant by get it, get counterinsurgency. He said one-third really get it, one-third are trying but don't, and one-third aren't really interested, which means that probably the majority of his force was deemed by him to be ineffective for the majority of his commanders. And he said we probably still have a force more interested in protecting itself than protecting Iraqis. And that raised the question for both of us whether we could win with a force of that kind. We are not winning in Iraq. And my concern is what we run out of chances before we start getting it right. Thank you. In the next few minutes, I want to um, I want to fix on a fairly narrow point, in the interest of hopefully making a broader point. And we'll see at the end of my remarks if I've succeeded. Um, the narrow point is, as Jeff points out, that there is this difficulty, this persistent difficulty that the United States has in fighting counterinsurgency. It's deep-seated. It's based on our cultural predispositions, which he lined, outlined in his paper and today. But they also reflect, I would argue, a relatively sophisticated understanding of the cost and benefits of waging such campaigns. And very recently, we can see both in the public opinion polls, but also importantly in the statements of leading politicians, a growing appreciation that the costs of waging an effective counterinsurgency campaign are rarely offset by the benefits we derive from them. Now, the issue of costs and benefits is closely related to two other features of modern American warfare, which, again, Jeff also mentioned. One is the supposed American aversion to wartime casualties and what Jeff called a few years back force protection fetishism exhibited by elites who may have wrongly convinced themselves that the American people have no stomach for casualties, regardless of the circumstances in which they are incurred. That's the key fallacy. The circumstances in which casualties are incurred do matter. And it is not true, as a number of scholars have pointed out, it is not true that Americans are intrinsically casualty-averse. It is true, however, that Americans are not enthusiastic about casualties in wars that do not serve a compelling national interest or that are tangential to American security. Political leaders typically address this challenge either by attempting to shape and mold perceptions of interest in the hope that Americans will see the loss of life as serving said 
interests. Or they minimize the risk of casualties occasionally to absurd ends by practicing this force protection, which, as the manual points out, as Tom just mentioned, is, uh, runs directly counter to effective counterinsurgency. Uh, as Sarah Sewell, who is the director of the Carr Center at the Kennedy School at Harvard, she writes a review of the manual in the, rec- in the uh, most recent issue of Military Review, and she says counterinsurgency, quote, demands that intervening forces accept greater levels of risk than they would in conventional conflict. Shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone who follows this closely, and the, and the manual confronts this relatively head on. There is no question, she goes on to say, that the restrained use of force can, uh, and certainly uh, by individual incident in the short term, equate to increased physical risk for counterinsurgent forces. Yet counterinsurgency demands increased acceptance of physical risk to forces in order to enhance the prospects for strategic success. And she concludes, this is an operational requirement, not a normative preference. Key point. So these types of conflicts, these counterinsurgencies, uh, are, are bloody difficult stuff, as we might say. Uh, it's protracted, time-consuming, risky. It's difficult to measure progress, and progress such as it is is uneven. Setbacks are, pe- are to be expected, which, again, to its great credit, the manual cites and, and mentions and notes explicitly. It's impossible, almost impossible, to bring our advantages, especially our technological edge, to bear, and the use of such means often prove counterproductive. That is, the measured use of force, which we've all talked about already. Consider these central facts against what was predicted prior to the war in Iraq, but actually conforms to a more general pattern. This is where I'm trying to hopefully make my broader point. It's not just about Iraq. It's about the general pattern. In making the case for a particular military intervention, X, the advocates of said intervention minimize or misrepresent the costs. They exaggerate the likelihood of success, and they inflate the benefits that will flow from that success. Then they rally the requisite public support, and within a short period of time, a matter of weeks, really, in the case of the first and second Gulf War, and in Afghanistan, the governing elites of the targeted country are removed from power, and the, uh, the army, such as it is, is uh, destroyed uh, as a uh, major, and we declare that major combat operations are over. If and when sometime later we encounter an insurgency, the initial response is to deny that one exists. For starters, to admit that we are confronting an insurgency runs counter to the liberation narrative that is central to American exceptionalism. After all, the United States is not an occupier, we're a liberator as we recall uh, former Senator Zell Miller famously thundered at the 2004 Republican National Convention. Liberators are greeted with flowers and kisses. France, 1944. Kuwait, 1991. By contrast, occupiers must deal with those individuals who oppose and resist the presence of foreign troops in their country. And this resistance takes the form of insurgency, therefore the requirement that you wage a counterinsurgency. When we finally admit that we are in fact facing an insurgency, this is presented as an unanticipated cost. We as a nation can no longer operate under that, mis- that, that, that mistaken belief. And the, the manual addresses this again head on. Early this year, uh, Justin Logan wrote a paper, and he was kind enough to let me put my name on it. And in this paper, we, he, notes 
the many practical problems associated with the post-conflict stabilization and nation-building. And when, when we published this paper in January, I was convinced that the key cost-benefit analysis that I'm going into now we needed to factor into nation-building. Well, actually, after studying counterinsurgency cramming, really, uh, over the last few weeks, I've determined that it actually isn't post-conflict stabilization per se. It is a security environment, which means counterinsurgency. That is the greatest cost of all. That is why it is so difficult, of course, to wage a nation-building campaign, which is why it is so hard to bring our uh, other non-military forms of aid to bear. Uh, returning then to the theme of this panel, what are the lessons of Iraq, particularly as they relate to counterinsurgency? Well, for starters, it is now recognized, and I think we have to repeat this, the Bush administration ignored and at times suppressed expert opinion and advice on what our troops would face in Iraq. Uh, we quote in our paper uh, the RAND Corporation's James Dobbins, who explains the Defense Department should have anticipated that when the old regime collapsed there would be a period of disorder, a vacuum of power, and that we should have anticipated that extreme, extremist elements would fill this vacuum. We should have anticipated this, but we did not, or I should say they, the Defense Department, should have, but they did not. There were many cases of assumptions and concerns about the post-conflict environment, which in retrospect proved uh, remarkably accurate. Had policymakers been working from a proper set of assumptions, the key ones being that there would indeed be an insurgency or something even more basic, the cashiering of the Iraqi army would be a disaster, the post-war planning would have been based on a much more uh, sober appreciation of what the country was likely to face. But it might even have affected and conditioned the decision to go to war in the first place. After all, the president estimated, on the basis of what evidence it's not known, that the costs of inaction in March 2003 were greater than the costs of action. Um, Part of his cost-benefit analysis, of course, was based on outsized expectations about the benefits that would flow from removing Saddam Hussein from power. But the key, I think, was to dramatically misjudge the costs. Why did we expect there would be no insurgency? I mentioned it already. It's the liberation narrative. Again, to the counterinsurgency manual's great credit, they pick up on something that Steve Metz and Ray Millen wrote about a few years earlier on counterinsurgency and differentiating between national insurgencies and liberation insurgencies. Just that section is, is fascinating reading because it runs so counter to the kind of rhetoric we hear from the White House every day, to even draw distinctions between these kinds of insurgencies and to suggest there are different strategies that we should employ depending upon what type of insurgency we're facing. So we have this problem of ideology, wishful thinking, analytical bias, etc. Uh, I've mentioned this before. We talk about it in our paper. It had a profound impact on the way that our troops conducted their operations and perhaps to some extent still do. Um, I note an article in Military Review by a British brigadier, which Jeff cites in his paper, Nigel Alwyn Foster. He said, American military personnel, quote, fervently believed in the mission's underlying purpose, the delivery of democracy to Iraq, encouraged the erroneous assumption that given the justness of the cause, actions that occurred in its name would be understood and accepted by the population, even if mistakes and civilian fatalities occurred in the implementation. In extremists, and perhaps this is what Tom was talking about, in extremists, this sense of moral righteousness manifested as deep indignation or outrage that could serve to distort collective military judgment. 
who are some of the other folks that were talking about what we were likely to face in the aftermath? Well, one of them was Con Crane, who, with Andy Terrell, published in February 2003, a fine paper, which concluded the rebuilding of Iraq would require a considerable commitment of American resources, but the longer U.S. presence is maintained, the more likely violent resistance will develop. Crane and Terrell predicted that an exit strategy would be contingent upon political stability, which will be difficult to achieve given Iraq's fragmented population, weak political institutions, and propensity for rule by violence. Moreover, rehabilitating Iraq will be an important challenge that threatens to consume huge amounts of resources without guaranteed results. All of this information, which Tom presents in his book and there are others, all this information was available from any number of sources and the White House and the top civilian leaders of the Pentagon decided to bank on a number of different, and it turns out, dubious assumptions. Pessimistic but ultimately accurate assessments from the Department of, Department of State, Army War College, senior military leaders, and even the NSC were seen at the time as unduly negative. If the errors in analysis and execution with respect to Iraq were driven by politics, it is obvious that a similar political dynamic could just as easily circumvent expert opinion, say with respect to effective strategies, force requirements, cost estimates, and casualty estimates for waging counterinsurgency in the future. Now, in fairness, please understand this is not an argument for the Army to avoid studying insurgency. We must have a counterinsurgency manual, and it must reflect the world as it is today, not that of the French in Indochina, or the British in Malaysia, or the Americans in Vietnam. And I commend senior Army officers, certainly Generals Petraeus and Mattis. I commend Con Crane and his co-authors for their clear-eyed assessment. It is an important book. It is an important book in the sense that it has this clear-eyed assessment. It, it assaults sacred cows, and it refuses to assume that our actions will automatically and inevitably be seen as legitimate and just. Um, but the case for war for whether the costs for waging this war are likely to be outweighed by the benefits must be made not by our military leaders, not by our civilian experts inside of the government, but by our political leaders, most importantly the commander-in-chief. That did not happen prior to the Iraq War. Um, let me close because I obviously, I'm so pleased that Jeff wrote this paper for Cato and it, it is a terrific paper. I had a it was really the first time I had a chance to, to look at this subject in, in some detail. And he comes to a conclusion that is one that I largely share. He writes, barring profound change in America's political and military cultures, the United States runs a significant risk of failure in entering small wars of choice. And great power intervention in small wars is almost always a matter of choice. The policy choice, he goes on to say, is obvious. Avoidance of direct military involvement in foreign, foreign internal wars and less vital national security interests are at stake. Most such wars do not engage core U.S. security interests other than placing the limits of American power on embarrassing display. These wars are primarily political struggles and only secondarily military contests. And the very presence of foreign combat forces can provoke insurgent attacks and undermine the legitimacy of the host government that we're trying to build up. Neither Jeff nor I contend that it will never be necessary to conduct counterinsurgency operations. The key is to understanding at the outset 
that some form of resistance or insurgency is likely, that success against such an insurgency is likely to be extraordinarily costly in lives and money, that this success is uncertain, and therefore that it only makes sense to engage sub, uh, such operations when truly vital national interests are at stake. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you all for those excellent presentations. It's rare that, uh, that we're as close to being on time as we are today, so I'm going to do something that I never do and uh, steal moderator's privilege and ask the first question. Um, I'm struck by sort of it's, it's rare that I'm not the purveyor of gloom and doom, but I want to try to, to draw us out of our, our, our uh, very pessimistic presentations that we've just had. And I want to ask Professor Crane in particular, we've heard all of these very pessimistic uh, assessments, and we've heard uh, bits and pieces, and some of us have read substantial portions of the manual. How total and how complete of an overhaul of not just the Defense Department, not just doctrine, but the interagency process, but of the entire national security bureaucracy uh, is necessary because it, the sacred cows that are slain in this manual are, are very much reside in long-standing traditions. So I wonder if you can talk to what extent we are near by the counterinsurgency manual's uh, 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 metrics such as they are being a country that is prepared to successfully fight and win counterinsurgencies in the future. Now, I want to throw in what's something I forgot to start with, which is the same disclaimer that Jeff Record said <laughs> with change Air Force to Army. Uh, you know, these are my own views, but the bottom line is the interagency process is broken. And, and uh, one of the dilemmas we talk about in the manual for the military is that, you know, the, the a lot of the missions that are necessary, in fact, the most important missions are, that are necessary to really be successful long-term in counterinsurgency are not traditional military missions. And most of them are better done by civilian agencies, uh, international organizations, non-governmental organizations, other, func other pieces of the U.S. government. But what we, we say in the manual is if, if you're on the ground – and, and something needs to be done, essential services need to be restored, an economy needs to be jump-started, governance needs to be started, and there's nobody else around, guess who gets to do it? You do. And, and that's the dilemma, historically, that the American military has faced. Uh, it's, you know, to use a football analogy, it's, you know, the quarterback takes a snap and goes to hand the ball off to the running back, and, and the running back is not there. Uh, it's, it's been very hard to find somebody to hand it off to. And, and the, uh, in September, there was a very serious conference uh, conducted that was really run by John Hillen from the State Department in an attempt to organize an interagency effort comparable to the military effort that the Army and the Marines had been running to redo this counterinsurgency doctrine, redo counterinsurgency practices. And it uh, goes back to some of the points that Tom had talked about also about Congress. You know, Congress needs to be galvanized to make this work also. And there are considerable resources that need to be dedicated to this effort to really make it work. Um, there are a lot of great ideas out there, a lot of people really interested in doing this. Uh, the military is very much behind this idea of getting interagency to work, whether it's because they, they realize how important it is or whether because they really don't want to do it and they want to give it back to the interagency. You can argue either way. But I was at a conference at Fort Leavenworth where uh, 
we had a very enthusiastic group of captains and majors talking about the necessity to get the interagency to work. I mean, this is very much a bottom-up reform. This is not something being imposed on the force by the generals. It's being driven by the, the soldiers on the ground that have seen the requirements of counterinsurgency. And these young captains and majors were saying, we need to have a State Department representative in every, every battalion, no, in every company. And talking about all the support they wanted the interagency involved with the military forces. And we had an old retired State Department ambassador in the back, and he stood up and he said, you know, great ideas, but you realize there are more bandsmen in the U.S. Army than there are foreign service officers in the State Department. And that's true. And so, you know, we have to do a lot of work in the interagency process, not only in, in building up resources, developing the planning organizations, developing the processes, if we're really going to be successful in this long term. I just want to make one quick comment. Is this microphone working? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, agreeing and understanding with everything Conrad Crane just said, I do also have a sneaking suspicion that there's a process going on here, not unlike uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's six stages of dealing with death, you know, denial, anger, acceptance, and so on. But the U.S. military's way of dealing with wars like Iraq is denial, anger, and the third stage is blame the interagency. <laughs> All right, with that, we'll go ahead and get started with questions. Let me just relay the ground rules that we always do. Uh, first of all, please wait for the microphone to come to you. Identify yourself and any affiliation that you may have, and please form your question in the form of a question uh, so that we can get as many as possible. Uh, the first is the gentleman all the way on the wall there in the back. My uh, question, my, I'm Ken Hoppala, and my question is directed uh, more specifically to uh, Mr. Crane, but the others may wish to answer as well. It's based on the 1940 Small Wars Manual by the U.S. Marine Corps, in which cites that the psychology of, that's needed to fight small wars is significantly different than the psychology that's needed to fight intense wars. Namely, intense wars require belligerence. The small wars require patience and steadiness. It's, and also requires much more out of the officer corps and the officers uh, fighting it. For counterinsurgency to be successful, there should be a promotion system for officers that are willing to make the sacrifices needed to come out of the mainstream war. Uh, in order to develop a good, effective uh, doctrine for small wars. Do you see this happening? Very good observations. Uh, We actually have a full chapter in the manual to talk about the dilemmas of leadership and ethics in in counterinsurgency. Uh, The problem is we can't afford two armies. Uh, The the, the armies, and and, and they've got to be prepared to do the conventional operations as well as the meet the needs of counterinsurgency. And there are times when you've got to kill people in counterinsurgency, too. So you can't lose those capabilities. But you're right, it's a difficult training and education program. There are a lot of reforms going on to do that. Your, your question, though, about promotion rates goes back to the institutional commitment that some of the other speakers have referred to. Uh, there are a lot of the generals who get it, generals like Petraeus, Shirelli, who have been promoted, and the system seems to be recognizing them. Uh, I, I agree that I don't think the advisory role has been appreciated enough. Uh, in some ways, the, I think that the, 
the sign that the institution is really getting it may be when people in advisory roles receive the promotions and the benefits they deserve. That was one of the big problems in Vietnam. Uh, so the jury is, I guess the argument is the jury is still out. Uh, from my son, from what I've seen, I think that uh, we're going in the right direction. But the question is also out there that we t- were talking about before we even walked into this session. Uh, you know, what, what happens when we're out of Iraq? Does the, has the momentum been established enough for the institution to continue this drive, or will it revert back to its historic precedence? So I, your questions are good. A lot of people are thinking about them. I think we're going the right direction, but only time will tell. Uh, gentleman right down here. Right down here, standing up. Mr. Crane, um, I, I read Mr. Rick's book, and he presents some pretty scary military figures in the book, one of whom is uh, General Aderno. Uh, I was frightened further here this morning to hear you refer to him coming back into service. How does that balance with what you're saying, Mr. Crane, in terms of you know lessons learned, uh, figuring out what we got wrong? How does someone like that and I don't mean to stand up here and condemn someone because I don't know everything there is to know about the general beyond what Mr. Ricks describes, but he didn't sound like the kind of person that ought to be returning to a high level of service. So, you know, how is that happening? I'll start and I'll let Tom come in second because I've get received, a, because of the work I did before the war and what I've done since, I've become a conduit for a lot of people, a lot of information, and I've received a lot of as can be understood, there are a lot of people from the 4th Infantry, Infantry Division that are not happy with some of the, the coverage and fiasco. And, and, and again, I don't, I don't have enough of the – I don't have enough of the – I haven't looked at op, all the operational reports to really have a good grasp myself. So I'll throw out an idea. Uh, what they point out, which is rightly so, is, again, goes back to this idea of a mosaic war. The situation that the General Erdierno faced was different than the situation General Petraeus faced. And different situations require different tactics, uh, different combination. Uh, I have some diagrams that if I was – I'm kind of wean myself from PowerPoint but because of some of the impression, some of the Cato people. But I've got some charts that show this mosaic war in Iraq and, and the nature of within Iraq itself and within even units in Iraq, you've got different, different units doing completely different missions, stability missions where they're building – Sewers and, and, and restoring the economy. Another group is doing full combat operations where they're trying to root out insurgents in a town. Another uh, group is fighting against a, an insurgent onslaught and doing defensive operations. So they, they see a very different kind of war. It's almost like the story of the blind men and the elephant. And everybody's grabbing a different piece of the animal to try to figure out what it is. And the perception of the 4th Infantry Division guys, they were facing a very different style, a different piece of the insurgency than, say, General Petraeus was in the north around Mosul. Uh, with that said, there's been a lot of learning that's gone on from that. And, and there has been, despite this, this, uh, this defensive reaction to this uh, critique of what the 4th Infantry Division has done, there's also been a lot of realization that, uh, which is really evident in the manual, about the costs of the use of excessive force. And, and we pride ourselves on hopefully being a learning organization where we won't do this again. Uh, I know that you know some of the recent criticism of the manual has been that we've that uh, some like Ralph Peters, who who has just came out with a very strongly against the manual, which to be honest, I don't think he really read it. Uh, 
but he came out very strongly against any. He basically wants to go back to this really heavy use of force that what Ordierno did was that was the right approach that you got to kill these people and intimidate them. And uh, we don't want to go back. To, you know, it, it, so there are some that that support this kind of of, of, of operational focus, and I. I think there's a realization within the, at least the institutional army that I deal with, that that is not the way to go, and we just can't do that again. We've got to be much more measured in the way we use our force. So hopefully, and I, but we, we won't do it again, and General Odierno is going to go back, and whoever he works under, he will operate within the confines of this new doctrine, the new ideas, which were not there when he was on the ground in Iraq the first time. Um, I came to, the, came to look at the fourth ID because in the course of researching my book, I began to notice this pattern, and I hadn't seen it on the ground. When I was with the 4th ID in Iraq, I'd been up in Crete with General Abizade when he was visiting General Odierno. Later, I was with a brigade of the 4th ID in Bakuba. So it was kind of a surprise to me, and again and again, I'd say, wait a second, this is a 4th ID unit, and oh, look, this is another 4th ID unit. It was coming up in these internal army investigations, and as I said, an IG report that shocked me because the army IG report said, uh, within the 4th Infantry Division, detainees routinely showed up beaten at detention facilities, but this study is only about what happens inside detention facilities, so that issue is outside the purview of this study. And that's an IG. I mean, that's a, a dereliction of duty. Um, and at, what happened is that as I did interviews, I would raise this. I'd say, you know, I didn't see this when I was with the 4th ID, but I'd say to other commanders, what was going on there? And they'd say, oh, yeah, we noticed that too. We tied in on their flanks. It's funny that you guys in the media never picked up on that. And the more I asked, yeah, people said, oh, you should look at this case and that case, and here's, you know, here's a CD-ROM with, with all the data on this investigation. And it really just seemed to me that the 4th ID stood out as exceptional, even in the context of the Sunni Triangle. So I kind of reject the notion of a mosaic war. This was a unit that came in determined to be very aggressive, and other very aggressive units, such as General Mattis's Marines, actually, in their official history, recorded their distaste for the 4th ID's uh, manner. And it was common, 101st did the same noting the 4th ID's aggressive posture, its tendency to point weapons at Iraqi civilians when it wasn't thought necessary by other units to do so. That said, the 4th ID hardly was the exception. A lot of units had problems. What shocks me is not really the 4th ID, it's the Army's response to this. To my knowledge, and if anybody here knows different, please tell me, the Army has not conducted or commissioned a study of patterns of abuse in Iraq. What sort of units are prone to abuse? Um, what are the vulnerabilities? What, are, what sort of units are more in danger? Um, one of my suspicions, and it's just a suspicion from looking at documents, is artillery units are more prone to abuse than, than frontline infantry units, probably because they're not as accustomed to direct confrontation, being indirect fire units. But that's just a suspicion. Uh, if the Army really loved its troops as much as it says it, it does, it would actually study that issue to prepare commanders and warn them. For whatever reason, your unit, say a reserve reserve units on their second tour that have recently converted from artillery to MP functions, are most prone to abuse, so you need to be extra careful. So that's what I really hope would come out of my book, not a denunciation from 4th ID guys saying we did honorable service, but rather what sort of vulnerabilities are there to, to using these broadly counterproductive approaches? Right there on the aisle in the back. Yes. 
uh, David Rogers, uh, independent historian. This, uh, although Afghanistan appears in the title of this presentation, uh, the entire des description and so far has been about Iraq. Uh, would you gentlemen on the panel please uh, say something about the situation in Afghanistan to the, the degree that... Uh, uh, the, the problems are similar or different. I would point out that my guru on this issue is Mr. Ricks's colleague, Pam Constable, and when she stopped being optimistic, so did I. Let me just, I'll, very quickly, relative to my remarks, uh, the difference from my perspective between Iraq and Afghanistan is that Afghanistan is the place where we actually need to conduct counterinsurgency operations because that is a vital national interest, just as the war there was. So. In the context of what I said, and in the context of we do need a counterinsurgency manual that deals with the world as it is today, that's what I meant uh, in Afghanistan. But there's a, that right now, there is an urgent resource problem uh, in terms of the number of assets that we have in that country and what we can do relative to what we're trying to accomplish in Iraq. There's no question about that. I'll just answer. Another, another case of, of undercommitment. Uh, we, we were undercommitted in, in Afghanistan. We're undercommitted uh, in Iraq. And, and one of the one of the byproducts of the Rumsfeld revolution, uh, the transformation revolution in the Pentagon, is the reversal of the Weinberger Powell doctrine, and that is go with the the, the Rumsfeld doctrine. Essentially, is go in with as min, with as, as small a force as you think you can get away with, and see if it works. Uh, I would just add that while I lived in Afghanistan as a teenager, I, I haven't been back since uh, 2004. January 2004, and so really I'm not current with it. However, it looks to me, I think that's Sean Naylor sitting right in front of you, who is probably the best expert on the Afghan war in the room. Um, so you should ask him afterwards. Uh, let me, I just, I'll, let me just throw out that the, uh, a lot of things went right in Afghanistan. The, 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 there was a lot of scrambling. We weren't quite ready for the counterinsurgency we ran into. We had one of the frustrating things to me, and this is my opinion, there was, a, there was a very good cartoon in the Washington Post that came out right about the time we went into Iraq that showed a bunch of little soldiers building a barn, and the barn said Afghanistan on it, and somebody comes up to the side and said, okay, time to go to Iraq, and as they run away, the barn starts to fall apart. And in some respects, uh, that goes back to this resource issue. We had a lot of things going right in Afghanistan in early 2003. I don't think we, we appreciate how much the progress we made, how well we were doing. And Iraq was a great distraction for that. And we've, we've, we've uh, I mean, the de development of the provincial reconstruction teams, uh, uh, working interagency process to some extent, a lot of things were being done right in Afghanistan. And, but Iraq has just sapped a lot of the resources. All the way in the back there. Hi, uh, Spencer Ackerman with the Washington Monthly and the American Prospect. Uh, I have a question for Khan, who said something controversial almost offhandedly that I was hoping uh, he could expand upon, uh, which is that uh, you mentioned uh, you, you consider counterinsurgency to be not fourth-generation warfare, but first-generation warfare on steroids. And uh, the sound you hear is uh, the gnashing of teeth at the Pentagon and in many uh, defense think tanks around town. So I was hoping you could expand on that inside and explain how it informs the new manual. Okay. Uh, part of it is that it, it, the whole problem with the term fourth-generation warfare it means different things to different people. And, and, and if... Uh, 
you know, the guy who has it closest, I think, to being right is T.X. Hammis, who sees it very much as this, you know, the sling of the stone, of this merging of old and new. But it, some people, fourth-generation warfare is network-centric warfare. For some people, it's all the high-tech whiz-bang stuff. So it, it's, it's a term that, almost like transformation, if I can be further heretical, which has become a buzzword that means different things to different people. Uh, so the point I'm trying to make with the first-generation warfare and steroids uh, comment is that we got to understand there's a lot of old mixed in with the new here and that uh, this is not you know networks is new globalization is new uh, this the, the ability of enemies to change so quickly and exchange information is new but a lot of the techniques techniques tactics procedures they use are not new the the motivations for all these insurgencies are thousands of years old in many cases the uh, the, the hierarchical structures, the tribes, the clans the, uh, th- that are involved in these insurgencies are based on history and culture. And so it's, it's I guess, the point I'm trying to make. I, th- I get the similar reaction. I get a lot of teeth gnashing when I throw that out, which is one of the reasons I do it. It's just to get the people think about the fact that this is a mix of old and new. I mean, in this whole debate about what kind of military we should have, you've got faith-based arguments on both sides. You've got the, 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 the true historians say that everything is tied into the past and, and, and we, can, we must learn from the past and history repeats itself, which is one extreme. On the other extreme, you've got the, the technocrats, the technologists who say that everything is new. And by God, we didn't get it right last time, but we'll get it right next time because we'll make new technology to do it. And, of course, the answer, the truth, as always, is somewhere in the middle. Okay, right down here in front. Right there. My name is Stephen Canby, uh, independent. Uh, I don't do any analysis. But it seems to me, and I like to uh, take Eastern's definition of fourth generation warfare, it's, it seems to me that the people who coined that were Martin Van Crayfield and uh, Bill Lynn, and their definition was completely different than yours. Yours is the Pentagon transformation of that argument, which I think is a little bit unfair. And that goes back to this whole history of difficulty of heavy forces coping with light forces. That goes back to at least the Peloponnesian Wars. And there's a reason why heavy forces have not been able to cope with the light forces. You also see it. Uh, European generals that were successful in the continent were not successful in the colonies and vice versa. So it goes way, 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 way back. And I think Europe, uh, but your explanation is a little bit of apologia for the U.S. Army today. But I'd like to uh, talk to Tom a minute. And your analysis, which is institutional, do you think there's a fundamental malaise in the U.S. officer corps? Do I think there's a fundamental malaise in the U.S. officer right. corps? In Could other words, this is an officer corps problem. It's not really a military problem, you know, problem writ large. It's the officer corps, and we have a tremendously large officer corps. And they study everything else, you know. We're 16% of the size of our force. Um. You know, I'm biased in this regard. I've covered the U.S. military for 17 years. You don't do that unless you like and admire a lot of people in the military. I actually think the officer corps is extremely good, extremely motivated, well-educated, cohesive, and well-trained. I don't mean at all to condemn uh, the officer corps as a whole. What I was specifically raising questions about was the willingness of Army general officers to coldly and soberly critique their own performance. I think we're seeing indications of that now. I'm waiting on the Bargewell report on what happened at Aditha, and I suspect that may be a little bit of a turning point. 
even a watershed in how milita- the military regards leadership issues in Iraq because uh, what I think they will deter- what they, I think that report has determined is that it wasn't a problem of individual m- Marines as much as it was a problem of leadership failures in correctly implementing the rules of engagement and looking at what they were doing, how they were doing it, all the way from training to battlefield leadership. Just uh, on the fourth-generation warfare thing, I, rather than get into all the long debate, I commend to you a study done by uh, Antulio Echeverria at the Strategic Studies Institute on fourth-generation warfare. It's available on their website. I recommend you download it and read it. And Again, the, uh, your concerns about the concept are correct. It's an important concept. Some of the, 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 things, the elements of heavy versus light you talked about the concern is just with what fourth-generation warfare and the terminology has started to become. And, and there are a lot of pieces of the concept that should be thought about, but the, the term has been hijacked in, in some extent and distorted. And, and I think that's part of the major issue. But, again, I contend, uh, really uh, recommend to you this Echeverria study uh, to read that on this whole debate. Justin, can I jump in on this point? Um, when I was doing some reading on the casualty aversion and force protection, I came across repeatedly reference to the zero defects culture in the in the officer corps, the sense that any, especially in the late 1990s, that any uh, military casualties would be defi- defined as a failure and therefore as a black mark on an officer's record, uh, and that was part of the explanation for why there was this force protection fetishism, which which Jeff and others wrote about. So the question I have, because it did stand, it really did jump out of, uh, out at me from the manual, this talk about um, setbacks are to be expected, that there is going to be there are going to be good days and bad days. Is there now a reflection that this zero defects culture is shifting maybe maybe to the sense that it's not military casualties per se as a zero defect, but it's these other abuses are a zero defect? Is there a new balance perhaps in the way that, that we, we approach these these challenges? We don't know yet. The answer is we don't know yet. The manual, it seems to me that my reading of the manual opens up at least a new a new avenue for looking at risk tolerance and uh and others have no, uh, sarah sewell mentioned this in her military review article as well yeah sarah's influence a lot of sarah gave me a a, whole, a lot of stuff to put in the manual that has basically been boiled down to one paradox i mean there's a lot of you know a lot of the experts and counterinsurgency gave us pieces for the manual that have become a paragraph here a table here and and this issue of risk came up and one of the paradoxes in the manual is the more you protect your force the less effective you are and that doesn't mean you don't use tanks or armored Humvees if you have to, or you don't wear body armor. It means that you've got to stay, you've got to stay out with the people and 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 uh, stay engaged. But there is a, one that comes out of the 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 uh, this the as the, your rules of engagement evolve, the more effective you are, the less force you can use, and the more risk you must accept. And and what happens is. And I got you. Got to excuse me. I've spent a lot of time talking with lawyers dealing with this manual, and it's it's affected me permanently, probably. Uh, but the what happens is that the as the level of, of force the enemy is using drops, and the level of violence drops, the security gets better. You you move from this realm of the uh, of the laws of armed conflict into the different areas of international law, human rights law, other things that that restrains what we, what you can do. So they're not only legal restrictions that appear that, that start to influence your rules of engagement, but also the expectations of the populace you're defending change. And as the enemy uses less force, you're expected to use less force as well. And, and so there's this dynamic going on that, that as, as, as you get better and better at what you're doing, you can use less and less force and have to take more and more risk. 
and and it's uh, again the, the the jury is still out to see how this new culture is going to develop. Uh, and you've got to understand that the basis of this is the pain and trauma units suffer when someone gets killed, and that's also in there as well. And 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 it's that can't be changed. And we actually have a section in the manual where we talk about how to dealing with combat stress and and what happens to your unit in these kind of engagements. And 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 so there's a lot of things involved that we put in this manual that are different, and we'll just see how they're absorbed and how the culture changes. Uh, towards the wall over there, blue shirt. Yes. I'm Carl Osgood. I write for Executive Intelligence Review. Tom, I've heard you say, and you say this in your book, that the uh, ob- objective of the ideologues who were behind the war drive was uh, was not stability. Stability was their target. Uh, if the decisions that sent the army to war were made in a political environment, that kind of political environment, is, is it even possible for the army to ever get counterinsurgency right? It's a good question. Um, is it possible for the army to get counterinsurgency right? In that, in the context, I actually think the army perhaps has been fundamentally at odds with the National Command Authority and its conception of the Iraq mission, which is it keeps on calling it stability. When there's no question in my mind that the U.S. National Command Authority's intentions in Iraq were revolutionary. That is the introduction of democracy into the region, into the country and the region, and a massive transfer of power from Sunnis to Shiites, both of them revolutionary acts. So were we honest about our enterprise, the U.S. Army manual would be called Revolutionary Operations. (laughs) I'm not holding my breath. (laughs) That's why it's a revolutionary war. Counterinsurgency and insurgency to both sides of the Revolutionary War. Let me add that, 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 that in all likelihood, the, the question about whether the Army's ever going to get counterinsurgency right may not, may not matter in, in the near term. Because I think one of the effects of this war is going to exert a hugely chilling uh, uh, influence on the political leadership about ever running at the risk of stumbling into another war like this. I mean, we remember that for 30 years after Vietnam, uh, and indeed, the genesis of the Weinberger-Powell Doctrine, which essentially read, uh, if you take Weinberger's six test and you take them literally, you would never use force against anybody unless they were coming ashore in the United States. And I think you're going to see certainly uh, a reaction in the Army uh, and, and in the military as a whole against uh, involvement in, these, in, in foreign internal wars. So we may be in for another 30-year period here of, of, uh, of perhaps excessive restraint uh, in in uh, in in uh, in our foreign policy, and particularly when it comes to using force. Yeah, Sarah Sewell made the exact same point that Tom just did at that Department of State DOD conference on counterinsurgency. She stood up in front of the multitude and said that you know the United States needs to understand what it really wants. Is it a status quo power trying to create stability, or is it a revolutionary power trying to transform societies and cultures? And if, if each has a very different implication for resources, force structure, strategy, and other things. Right down here. Uh, Nick Berry, uh, Foreign Policy Forum. I don't have the numbers, but it seems that uh, a very large number of insurgencies are legitimate, very legitimate. They have the overwhelming support of the population. Uh, we're, we're 
in a country now that began an insurgency against Britain uh, by the colonials. Uh, you, can, you can go to the anti-Nazi uh, insurgencies uh, in uh, France or uh, Yugoslavia. Uh, you, all the decolonialization anti-insurgencies. It, so, and, and Palestine, uh, currently. Uh, Northern Ireland. Isn't it true that the only way to delegitimize legitimate insurgencies is to make plans to leave? By the way, all the ones I mentioned uh, were, were settled by the occupying repressing power leaving. And those that still continue, the, the powers are still occupying and repressing. Let me, the difference is, Chris, yeah. um, Afghanistan seems to, the insurgency there doesn't have much legitimacy. But it has overwhelming legitimacy in Iraq. The figures we see in the latest polls, 80% of uh, Iraqis thinks it's okay to shoot at Americans. That is um, a, a very legitimate insurgency. Right. I, I started to allude to this in my remarks, and I, I cut it short, but um, I, I mentioned the, uh, the Steve Metz, Ray Millen paper from a few years ago, uh, the Army War College paper on insurgency, counterinsurgency, which differentiates between national insurgencies and liberation insurgencies. And the, the manual picked up on that and, and used, I think, pretty much the, the definitions that, that Stephen Ray yeah, we, put we, we, forward. We, in the latest version, we just, we just call them resistance movements, but it's the same concept. Okay. So, and, but, but what was key, and what I, I plan to uh, I'll mention now, is that uh, in the Metz-Millen paper, they, they note there are different strategies for dealing with a national insurgency versus a, a liberation insurgency. And the manual stopped a bit short of that. One of the key points was about containment, about containing a uh, liberation insurgency, whereas you actually can hope to achieve or, or aspire to achieve a victory, a decisive victory in, an, in a national insurgency. The, na the difference is that it has to do with the legitimacy of the host government, whereas in a insur national insurgency, the host government is seen as, as legitimate, whereas in a liberation insurgency, it's a function, as you point out, of foreign occupation. Not all insurgencies are in, are in response to foreign occupation. Some insurgencies are in response to just a, a political dispute that takes on military dimensions. Right, so um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Khan could could elaborate that on that a little bit more. Uh, you know, the, the the term legitimate insurgency is mixing a lot of concepts together. That you know, legitimacy is the is the the coin of the coin of the Roman coin. <laughs> to get throw some metaphors out is, is legitimacy, and that's what both sides are struggling for. So. Uh, but and almost all insurgencies end with a political compromise solution of some kind, uh, and and so it's it's you know I, I don't try to keep the answer short. Every insurgency ends kind of a different way. There are usually some kind of political compromises involved. Uh, a lot of times it involves someone leaving. Uh, normally it's it's not a pure. Uh, where you've got once you've got this this freedom the freedom fighters versus an occupying power. A lot of times it's f what we would call freedom fighters and occupying power. But there's also a government there as well that's being supported by this occupying power, and it gets very murky into the the combinations and permutations of what they call them. It, it, every every insurgency is unique in some ways, but 
I guess the only point I can throw out that's useful here is they usually do end with some kind of political compromise where neither side gets completely everything that they want. And, and it would be a different combination depending on who the, who, the, who the belligerents are and the combination of people involved. Uh, let's go right down here then. Uh, Mark Birnbaum, Bethesda, Maryland. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that's new in the last 20 years is the, the increasing extent to which the People's Republic of China is an ally of the United States in global affairs. Uh, the formation of the People's Republic of China was, I would claim, one of the most successful insurgencies of the 20th century. I'm wondering, to the two uh, military officers, to what extent the military of the United States has solicited advice, technical assistance, from the military of China on teaching about the right way to think about insurgencies? Now we're getting real political. Well, I'd say that uh, besides the fact that we've read a lot of the Chinese stuff and you know the, to the Chinese it's kind of like you know that the politics is war by other means they've almost uh, if you read some of their white papers and things uh, but uh, actually one of the criticisms of the manuals we've the, especially the early version of the manuals we took too much from the Chinese and, and, and that Mao is there was too much Mao and that was the criticism of the 2004 version of the manual the interim manual that was produced that we started with when we start when I started this project late last year so it's, it's, we've looked at the Chinese. Uh, I've actually talked to some of the Chinese. We've read a lot of their stuff. Uh, but it, it, this is not, you know, Maoist people's war is the most complex type of insurgency you can face. It's very rare, however. A lot of people use pieces of it, but you rarely face the whole package. And, and we, 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 we've, we're cautioned by many people not to focus too much on that particular example. In many cases, that's the worst Scenario you can face a full-blown protracted people's war, but it's not the most likely scenario you face. So it's in there. Uh, we've absorbed as much as we could. I actually slipped a little more Mao back in some of the later versions, but uh, it's not. It's it's one of the many examples and paradigms we looked at. Anything there? Okay. We have time for one last question. Let's go right there on the aisle in the back. Uh, my name's Paul Lois. I'm with the Arlington Institute. I have an open-ended question for any of the panelists. Those of you who believe that the U.S. mission in Iraq can end successfully, how would you define success and what specific measures need to be implemented to get there? That is open-ended. Anybody want to? Uh, if you define success in the maximalist terms of the initial Bush administration's portrayal of what we were seeking to do in Iraq, and that was to uh, disestablish the existing dictatorship and creating a thriving uh, democracy, I think uh, I don't think anybody's talking about that uh, anymore. I mean, you're now uh, starting to hear talk about Perhaps we may have to uh, encourage a military coup. Perhaps we may be looking for a strongman uh, to take control uh, of, of Iraq and impose some degree of order. I find that rather ironic since we haven't yet shot Saddam Hussein. He's tanned, he's rested, he's ready. Uh, we, we, we may end up uh, putting him back into power in order to save our bacon in Iraq. Hard act to follow. Anybody want to? I would actually just add that my, my response would be to ask 
tell me which Shakespearean tragedy ends successfully, because that's the choices we face now. Uh, I think the beginning of wisdom is to recognize that Iraq is a tragedy. We're in Act Three. The Shakespearean tragedies have five acts. And the beginning of wisdom in seeing it as a tragedy is to understand that there are no good answers left. The question we face as a nation is what's the least bad answer available? All right. Well, with that, let me thank all of you very much for being here and thank our commentators. Please join us upstairs for a second.